Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Our top story in the last 24 hours, we've had 24 hours of Fed speak and very little sign, if any at all, that the Fed is ready to make a move. The Richmond Fed president saying there's not a strong case to push rates higher when inflation is under control. There's not a strong case to move lower when growth remains healthy. Here in New York to discuss, Troy Gajewski, Skybridge Capital Co-Chief Investment Officer. Good morning to you, Troy. Good morning, Jonathan. What do you make of that? 24 hours of Fed speak and nothing really to validate market pricing your thoughts yeah well look i think it just goes back to the fact that they're very data dependent now and we keep looking at the data and you know strip out trade conflict for now the consumer is in exceptional shape business fixed investment's been on a nice little trend line um even though inflation softened and obviously the labor market can't create 2.7 million jobs around pace for 2.4 there's really no reason to cut in the short term uh at, at the on the flip side however is if you look at how low inflation remains right? There, there's certainly no reason to hike. So having that view of, hey, we're going to see how the data comes in and it's unclear which direction we're going to go, we think is very healthy for markets. And it continues to confuse us why markets are pricing in uh, a, a more aggressive cuts in the near term. Do you think the market is vulnerable? Well, the, the rate markets or the equity markets? The rate market, given where the pricing yes, is right yes, now. Yes, yes. I think, well, if you... Rewind the clock two to three weeks. We were much more concerned it was vulnerable because of that, because trade had not uh, the trade conflict had not uh, escalated so dramatically. Now that trade conflict has escalated, we talked about this before. The probability of, of a hike has gone down, even though they weren't that high to start with, and the probability of the next move being a cut has gone up. But the timing and magnitude are still very much in question, and we're not going to get clarity on that. We think until Q3 or Q4 of this year, when you see whether we can sustain job growth at this level. It was interesting listening to Chairman Powell yesterday evening. The acronyms have changed a bit, but once again, we see a category of debt that is growing faster than the income of the borrowers, even as lenders loosen underwriting standards. Not only is the volume of debt high, but recent growth has also been concentrated in the riskier forms of debt. Now, market participants don't often listen to the Federal Reserve when they make trade recommendations, but quite clearly, leverage loans have come in for some criticism. Rightly so, in your opinion, Troy. Uh, certainly. I mean, it has some of the same hallmarks of what happened in subprime, right, where you have insatiable demand for AAA notes. Wherever there's demand for, for AAA, investment bankers will find ways to create it. And given the weakening underwriting standards in that market, you've seen an explosion of supply. Um, and, and then if you look at the underlying credit quality, the borrowers, debt to EBITDA or leverage levels, I'm looking over at Tom here from before on TV, uh, leverage levels have gone up rather rather substantially. So it does have the hallmarks of substantial pain in the near term uh, once we eventually have a recession or a pullback. And so uh, from a policymaker standpoint, it, it, they're not going to hike rates or cut rates or, or change their whole uh, framework for, for – um, for, for regulation. However, yeah. them calling attention to the problem is very important because the more you focus not only U.S. investors on the potential problem, but also Japanese and European investors that have that demand for AAA, the, the, more, the less likely we are that it actually turns into a systemic problem. So let's go to that ratio. I mean, price-earnings ratio is comparing the price of a stock to its earnings fine. Mm-hmm. Price to cash flow, price to sell, da, 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 da. You're looking at the debt and comparing it to the operating income and you pull over some depreciation effects That's right, yeah. as well. 
And yet people are worried about debt. And yet John Farrow is telling us on The Real Yield, see at 1 p.m. Uh, Fridays on Bloomberg Television, uh, soon to be on eight days a week, um, <laughs> it, that, that, that if, if you look at companies, they can issue kajillions of dollars of debt with four phone calls, six phone calls. So it depends on the market. Levered loan markets have tightened up this year because the, the demand for floating rate product has, has waned significantly. Well, right? Troy, that's the irony of this, isn't it? Exactly. That, that demand was building and supply was meeting demand as the Fed was raising interest that's rates. Right. That's right, which the, is it's counterintuitive. The, it's right? the Fed pulling back that has actually drained some of the Throth away because a floating lines. rate yield comes down and is less attractive. Exactly. Did I get that right? Exactly, 100%. Yes. yes. So, like, think about it last September, September 27th. Markets are pricing in two hikes in 2019. Everybody's geared up for a hike in December. So, it's hey, floating rate, floating rate, floating rate. And so, you had that to your term froth in the market, which led to even tighter spreads yeah. and weaker underwriting. Now that it's clear the Fed's not hiking twice this year, we can definitively say that, and may in fact cut next, you've seen much less demand. Now, in contrast for that, you have seen fixed supply come up in the high yield market. So basically what CFOs are doing and investment bankers is flipping the new supply from more floating nature to a more fixed nature. Do you think the Fed warning ultimately isn't for Wall Street, it's for the other market participants? away from the institutional base. Has the composition of the investors that are involved in this part of the market changed over the last couple of years? Do you think that's why they're a little bit more concerned? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you see the increase in retail assets, not only in high yield, but also in levered loans, it's been quite dramatic. So, you know, I I think Powell did a good job without being a sensationalist, highlighting the fact that there could be material losses in the next recession. And that's been our whole point, right? You know, when we hear people say, you know, high levels of corporate credit are going to cause a recession or the world's going to end. You know, that's kind of silly. But but the reality is when you go into a recession with high leverage levels yeah. and enormous growth in supply, you invariably have a substantial mark to market and more more critically realized losses, right? It's the realized losses that cause well, the pain. How are the realized gains of hedge funds right now? I believe we're up 13% SPX, whatever, for the year. We're 4% off the highs. I know it's a bear market. Yeah. But how are hedge funds doing justifying making single-digit returns in a double-digit world. Yeah, well, Is that story still working? Yeah, it would dip- it's obviously working less well than, say, five, six years ago, where there's much more demand but for a hedge But it's still working. Product. But it's still working. We'll think about it. So you look at I'm, the la- I'm fine. I'm ready to think about it. Go. No, no, no. So look at the last few years. So so obviously, equities had a strong 17, but 90% of investable assets were down last year, right? The the, the, the quote-unquote upper decile, upper quartile hedge funds, you know, were up 3 4 5% last year. So that was adding value. You know, fixed income has not done anything now for basically three years. So, you know, comfortably off of growing fixed income. But the trade-off has been and, and, and always will be, are you willing to sacrifice the, the the extreme upside that equities provide? If you are, what else are you going to own? Right? And if it's fixed income, you're looking at very low interest rates. You've just had rates drop dramatically. Bonds have, have rallied hard. Yeah. So there's a lot less upside there. And unfortunately, now that high yield and, and investment grade spreads are tight again, there aren't that many other options besides equities where you can do high single digits. There just aren't, period, where, full stop. Where'd you hold your SALT conference in Las Vegas? Uh, at Where's the Bellagio, it? yeah. At the Bellagio. Yes, we yes. weren't invited. John and I, no, you no, and I, no we invite. went to the Paris. You guys are always, you guys are and always invited. And then we went over to Caesars. Yeah. We went over to Caesars to bet on English football or whatever John we, was we, doing. We got to do we it. Did, John, we didn't get to the Bellagio, did we? 
Well, I just I, I didn't get the invite this year. <laughs> oh, you didn't? I, 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 saw, I, I saw, didn't either. I saw Mr. Scaramucci a couple of months ago, and he said we could go, and he didn't follow up. <clears throat> oh, so, no, well, no follow-through. You know what we need? You know? We need a Bloomberg radio spot at the Ocean House in Watch Hill this summer, guys, in August. I think that's a what remote? we need. I remote, think that's that all we need cool. to do. A remote from what we Michael Barr could cool. come with us, and, you know. You guys get the VIP I'll service. I'll bring the luggage, for, man. No, for I'm a coming. global audience, Watch Hill is G- it's like it's like that city in Kansas or Illinois, wherever it is, which is the center of America. Watch Hill is a geographic center between Red Sox fans and Yankees fans. It's like there's a hotel. Is What's it tense out there? Ocean House, yes. The Ocean yeah. House has a blue and red line right through the middle of it. And on one side is Red Sox Nation, and the other side is the dreaded Yankees. On the other side, are they a little bit happier? It's like a moment? derby, but... They're yeah. a bit happier, aren't they're, they? They're a bit happier, They're a little yes, bit happier. Yes, yes, thank you for You're having a tough year, aren't you? Um, it's, it's early. You know, I, I, usually the season's over by now, but, but it's, it's been an odd year in baseball. The season's usually over by, There's by May 20th. What are you talking no, about? No, for me and the Red Sox, season's usually over about April 15th. But we're not there yet. This is a joy because David Kelly has a little bit of experience in the ups and the downs and linking here economics into what to do with your money. He has a shingle out at J.P. Morgan Asset Management as chief global strategist, which simply means you synthesize in a whole bunch of different opinions to try to formulate a view. Has the view changed in the last week? Uh, no, I, I, I think it's it's just gradually slowing down. I mean, we're uh, you know we still think the economy is on, on a slowdown. I think what's what's significant though is uh, this increased trade rhetoric. Is, What's it um, do to EM? I saw a J.P. Morgan headline on EM that was pretty moldy. Can you stay well, in it, EM? No, it's yes, you can stay in the EM for the long run, and you ought to because trade trade wars are so bad that eventually they burn out. And you know, longer term, we do think that emerging markets have demographics that we simply don't have in the developed world. Uh, you know, over the next five years, I expect EM stocks to out, outperform U.S. stocks. But um, there's no doubt that in a world of increased tension and a world with decreasing trade. EM, you know, is at the front lines and that, that will get hurt. You mentioned the nationalism word. Yeah. The reality of increased nationalism in China, or at least the perception yeah. of increased nationalism, it looks like the propaganda effort has intensified somewhat yeah. over the last couple of weeks. What does that mean for corporates, U.S. corporates, operating in China right now? I, I think it's pretty negative. I mean, we've got to remember this is a very raw nerve for the Chinese. China, you know, we think of China as sort of the... The Communist Party, but even before that, Chinese nationalism was really centered around the issue of trade. They don't want the West bullying them specifically on the issue of trade. And so, you know, I think Xi Jinping is a, is a nationalist. I think that, and this building nationalist sentiment will make it tougher for U.S. companies operating in, in uh, China. And then, and then more broadly, China's not a small player anymore. I mean, the, the, I mean, if you look at the numbers at the growth of China relative to the United States, it's astonishing. We're almost getting to a bipolar world in terms of economic spheres of influence. And we need cooperation from China on many, many issues. So uh, it's quite a dangerous thing when the two biggest economic powers in the world uh, are butting heads like this. I'm sensitive to the fact that you can't talk single names, but something I'm sure that will come up in conversation again and again and again over the next couple of weeks is what happens to the big consumer discretionary companies, the big companies like Apple trying to export into China or rather trying to sell product in China. Do you think, and not for Apple specifically, but more broadly, we face the very real prospect of a boycotting 
in China? I, I think it's. I think we have to think about our global reputation. You know, it, I mean, we, we. You know, it used to be around the world that American stuff was regarded as cool, and America was regarded as cool. And I'm not sure that's the case right now. And that I think even even beyond a more well, blunt nationalistic, um, you know, boycott, I think the fact that that our reputation is not what it was is a right. problem. Not that I've ever darkened the door, but if you look at the jazz bar at the Peace Hotel in Shanghai, mm -hmm. it's sort of a nexus on the Bund. Are Americans going to be welcome there in one year or five years or 10 years? Well, you know, I think people around the world tend to be pretty, um, you know, kind to individuals. But but it's uh, so no, I but I mean, business. I mean, come on, business slides yeah. in. Not that I would know this, but they don't want to stay at the Waldorf Astoria. They want to go down the bone and stay at the It Peace sounds Hotel. like you would know this. <laughs> there's always a story and there's always a bar. It's the jazz bar. It's the greatest jazz bar in Asia. OK, are we are business people? And journalists and news people, are they going to be allowed in the jazz bar at the Peace Hotel in Shanghai in five a, years? I don't, well, I don't have a specific answer for, for that. But, but, the, uh, but, on the, but the five years issue is important. Look, we have an election coming up in the United States in you know, 18 months, less than 18 months. Uh, and uh, at that point, you know, if somebody else, you know, I try to stay out of the politics of this, but if the president gets reelected, he will not have as much of a political interest in stirring up the base with sort of nationalist frenzy. If the president is not re-elected and somebody else comes in, it's hard to believe that whoever would replace uh, the president would be as aggressive on trade as Donald Trump has been. So either way, I'm not sure that the, the, uh, the effort on the U.S. side or the aggression on the U.S. side or aggressiveness on the U.S. side with regard to trade is going to be um, as strong after the next election as it is right now. We're consumed with a trade story at the moment. Yeah. Here in the United States, the data is really interesting right now. It's actually quite difficult to get your hands around yep. what is happening with the U.S. economy. You've pointed out, David, and I'd love you to give us some more color on this, that the high sentiment reads that we're getting for the consumer especially over the last week or so maybe a little bit misleading. Why? Well, you know, absolutely. Well, the first thing is University of Michigan Index of Consumer Sentiment, they interview less than 300 people for their initial survey. I'm sorry, 300 people is not a survey uh, in, in economic terms. So I'd be ner nervous that number anyway. But also, you know, sentiment just reflects what people are hearing about the state of the economy. You ask people, well, how are, how's the economy in your neighborhood? How on earth would you know? People don't talk about their money in their neighborhood. People don't all sit around the local bar as if it was Cheers or something and talk about what's going on in the economy. They read the economy based on what they hear in the news and they're not hearing anything bad on the news. So that's, that's what's going on right now. But also, what you know is happening is the consumer, consumer income has now got a huge boost from the tax cut, but that effect is fading. And if later on this year you have higher, another 25% tariffs on Chinese goods, that's going to be a further squeeze uh, on consumer income. So we know consumer incomes are fading. We have know we've seen an inventory build. This economy is actually slowing down from 3% to 2%. Uh, I think the no, first wait, quarter wait, was. Wait, wait, are you talking about a two percent run rate for global economy? No, oh, no, oh. for the U.S. economy. What do you about OECD? OECD just goes from three point three down to three point two. Are you there? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to argue with them about a tenth. But, and but the more important point is that's a three, and we cannot sustain a three in the U.S. Exactly. We can sustain a two. So if you're a long-term investor, do you want to be investing in an economy with a steady-state growth rate of three or a steady-state growth rate of two or less? And that would be still a reason to be invested around the world. Yeah, but this is critical. The, the run rate now for the global economy in textbooks and studies, it's always been four and five percent. Yeah. Are those days over as the new yes. terminal rate for the global GDP, 3%? A, a bit over 3 but yes. Uh, because, John, this is a huge because you can, deal. Because you can, you can, 
What we're looking at is throughout the developed world, we've got very slow labor force growth coming. Uh, When we're in the last 10 years, we're coming out of the great financial crisis, re-employing people. But if you look, you know, over the next 10 years, um, you're going to see um, virtually no labor force growth in, in Europe. You're going to see declining labor force in uh, in uh, Japan. Um, China's turning the corner also. So you don't have the labor force growth. And you get some productivity growth, but it's uh, again, it's not a huge build in manufacturing or agriculture, which tend to have a lot of uh, productivity growth. It's it's services. So I, I, we're going to slow in productivity. We're going to slow in terms of labor force growth. The global economy is going to grow more slowly. And by the way, that's not necessarily bad. Because, you know, we, the global economy cannot, you know, if we grow as fast as we are in people and in stuff, we're eventually going to choke ourselves. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a, an economist who says we must okay. always have strong long-term growth. But from an investment perspective, yes, the global economy will grow more slowly. So final question, and perhaps the most important one, given everything you've said, what do I want to own? Right now, um, well, I think I think you just it depends on how long you're investing for. If you if you're investing for the long run, I'd still be outside the United States. Uh, really? I'd, I'd overweight outside the. Of course, I'd be. I'd have a chip in every square to start with. But if I had an extra chip, I'd put it overseas in emerging markets because once you get to the backside of this trade war, and eventually you will, they've got the demographic growth, growth and productivity growth to do. Frankly, what the developed world can't do. What's the time horizon for this? Because some people might reflect on the story of last year and say, "Well, that doesn't add up. I'd expect the U.S. to outperform in this kind of disruptive period that we faced last year and may well spill over into the next couple of years." What's the time horizon for this, David? Uh, well, you know, I would not be surprised if within the next year, EM and the rest of the world start outperforming the U.S. because we're we're going to see that slowdown in the U.S. one way or the other. Now. If we see a slowdown and a crash into recession or greater crisis, then yes, the U.S. may temporarily outperform the rest of the world. But if we stabilize at a slower pace of growth, then I think there will be a switch over uh, to international equities doing better than U.S. equities. Very interesting. That debate will continue on this program. David Kelly, J.P. Morgan Investment Management, VP and Global Market Strategist. Great to catch up with you, David. Good to see you. So he is a gentleman from Maine and from the outskirts of Boston, Robert Diamond. He has, of course, for years with Barclays and out of Colby College, now with Atlas Merchant Capital. Bob, well timed to have you here today. Deutsche Bank, a mess. In the FT today, Patrick Jenkins dovetails a Goldman Sachs acquisition, I guess, of the good bank of Deutsche Bank. Do American banks have any place in the salvation of European banking? Ah, that's a really good question, Tom. I, I, I wouldn't think that that makes sense. I, I don't know what Goldman gets out of that. I mean, Goldman's not going to have a stronger investment bank by integrating with, with Deutsche. And I think the fundamental issue that the chairman, Paul Eichleiter, faces is what is the business model going forward? Exactly. I mean, it's a bit pejorative to say it this way, but I believe it. If you go back 10 years to the crisis, then Deutsche was a trader built by traders for traders. It was about risk, it was about assets, it was about balance sheet. And post-crisis, that's not what the regulators or the political leaders are gonna allow. So it takes a dramatic shift. And I think the struggles we've seen with Deutsche and the lower share price are really around what is the business model that's gonna make money going forward. So there was a joke yesterday that the article on why Goldman Sachs should not buy Deutsche Bank would be about five times as long. I mean, that's the story. I mean, granted, it was a decent piece, Tom, but the idea that Goldman is going to buy Deutsche Bank... No, Patrick hedged that at the end of the article. I think that just sounds like insanity to a lot of people at the moment. Let's talk about the kind of business model that does work in Europe right now, Bob. What is it? So if I look at at my alma mater, if I look at Barclays, if investment banking is struggling, 
They have a strong underlying retail business. They have a very, very strong credit card business, and they have an investment banking business. All three on their own are credible market leaders and can make money. I think in the Deutsche situation, one of the challenges is they don't have that underlying retail business in Germany, or it doesn't appear to me that the post-bank uh, acquisition right. has given them that, that earnings juggernaut, if you will. So they don't have the, the, the ballast or the, or, or the support. When you look at the French banks, when you look at the Spanish banks, you see them with that core underlying domestic yeah. retail and corporate business that is strong. Italy, Spain, is Italy part of this story? You're in Italy right now. We, we are we'll uh, we a in lead investor in Alimini, the bank that Corrado Pacera has started. It's going quite well. Now, no legacy loans, not a single loan on the balance sheet. So no legacy technology. We've been able to bring in all our own technology. And as you know, in, in this day and age, you don't have to develop technology. You can buy the packages and put them together and compartmentalize them. So the Italian banks, the traditional banks, yeah. are still riddled with non-performing loans. So I think there's a great opportunity, and I, right. I mentioned this to you offline, in Spain and Portugal, I think yeah. there's a downright uh, Iberian renaissance happening. I don't want to get way out, but it wasn't that long ago that youth unemployment mm -hmm. in Spain was 35 or 40%. And we're really seeing the periphery of Europe right. outpace core Europe, and I think it's can, quite interesting. Can you explain to our global audience of sophisticates, but also everybody else, if investment banking is challenged why can't they just cut costs, whether it's Deutsche Bank or any other bank? Is there such a fixed investment nature to investment banking that if they're struggling, you can't just cut costs like you would in any other division? I, th I, I think the good investment banks have learned that. Um, and I think there was a period post the crisis where they were having a hard time figuring out what's the core business or exactly. what's the appropriate yeah. size. but. Yeah. You know, the U.S. investment banks, although it was a tough fourth quarter in the first quarter, you know, it's somewhat, it'll always be somewhat cyclical. They made those decisions. the U.S. investment banks are doing well. Why can't European banks make that same set of decisions that seem to come easily under the Anglo-Saxon model? Well, I think there's Anglo -American a couple of reasons. Model. One of the advantages for the, I mean, I think there's a good reason why the one credible competitor to the U.S. investment banks is still Barclays Capital, notwithstanding the, the harsh regulatory environment in the UK, ring fencing, tax on your global balance sheet. Notwithstanding that, the, the reason is the Lehman acquisition. They have a deep <clears throat> client presence and a deep business here in right. the US. And the US is really the, if, if you don't have a strong presence in the US, a credible presence and a profitable presence, it's unlikely that you're gonna be a great global investment bank. Did you see how he has two plugs for Barclays? Yeah. Just in the last five minutes, 22 <laughs> seconds? Well, he still feels Not very- it's, it's just- Without it's notes just, too. Still, still loyal to the firm, <laughs> yeah. quite clearly. So Bob, you mentioned something that if you can't compete in the United States, you can't be a global bank. Yep. Can European banks become global banks then? Because it doesn't think, look like they can compete in the United States. I don't think European banks should be focused on being global banks. They should be focused on being number one great in their country and number two great in the region. And I do think there's an opportunity over the next, what, three, five, seven years to start to see some cross-border consolidation right. in Europe. But it's not going to happen until we see domestic consolidation. So and capacity needs to be cut too, I would assume, absolutely. in some of these countries. So yeah. how do they swallow that? So, you know, you, you, I was surprised, quite honestly, that the, the Deutsche Bank, Commerce Bank didn't go through. 
It seems in to in make what sense way, please? You're the only one who thinks that. Continue. Um, so I didn't see the numbers, so I'm, I'm dealing without those. But um, uh, the opportunity to, um, you know, be more of a um, a high presence domestic player to have more right. of that market to take out costs. Um, and the government already owns part of Commerce Bank. It just seemed to be a natural for kind of a resolution to some of the challenges. I'll agree with you, but the behavior, the culture of executives wasn't there to make tough decisions, right? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm from a distance, but I, I, I would have a hard time arguing right. with you. You're new Italian bank. What I mean, Goldman Sachs is doing a bank. I can't remember what the name of it is right now. You know, thinking of Marcus. Yeah, thank you. Whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, everybody's got a bank. What's going to be your angle? So Are you going to have an ATM yeah. at the Spanish Steps our angle, right next to the Gucci store? Our angle is no legacy loans. Yeah. All digital. All digital. So our we'll have a few branches, but most of our deposits are coming in. So what did you learn from ING? And our lending is to small businesses. What are you learning from ING as sort of an all digital early early provider um i'm not sure they've been the model is 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 uh as much as just what the what the environment proposes it's not hard it's not hard to build a digital bank if you're starting from scratch it's very hard to build a digital bank if you're starting from decades and decades and decades and decades of non-cloud based old technology when was the last time you were in a branch in a bank branch, I, I was like, I, maybe I'm last years. week or something. Oh, really? Something like that. I will tell you, and and I wish we had Bob for longer. The way Why the UK we? retail banking has changed versus, say, the United States, I'm willing to say the US is perhaps five years behind, maybe even ten years that, behind Mr. in Diamond? some spaces. Five years? It is a radical difference for me, yeah, but even, my experience here. Even farther behind China, they're getting so tech enabled so so quickly. It's it's uh, it's scary. Can James Diamond catch up? Uh you know, I, I'm not close enough to what he's doing, but it seems to me that he's putting the appropriate focus on technology and partnerships. Yeah. Um, so he certainly is, has the attention. Is he leaving or does he get to stay? I don't know. I'd love to keep Bob. Can you hang out with us for a little while, Bob? Uh, what do yeah. we have next? It's, it's, I think Bob, no boss here. Bob, Bob can stay with us a little oh, bit Oh, we longer. had somebody from the Red Sox. Oh, okay. Colin. Okay, well, we could do that with Bob Diamond, too. This is fun. Bob Diamond with us, of course, formerly with Barclays, uh, Atlas merchant capital a banker uh, in Italy yeah so Home Depot reported earnings today uh, stock trading off today a uh, couple points four points here Kohl's also had some disappointing numbers here to help us break down the uh, HD earnings Seema Shah Bloomberg intelligence consumer analyst following all things retail for us joining us here on our Bloomberg interactive broker studio so Seema let's start with Home Depot as mm -hmm. Tom said it's they're just <clears throat> everywhere they are um, what happened today so basically what happened, they had a very wet February. That was the only month where they had negative comps. They saw acceleration through the rest of the quarter. Uh, so that negatively impacted their top line. And there also was significant lumber deflation. I think they said it could have impacted sales by about $200 million. So going so forward... So lumber deflation, that means the price, price of, they can, they can price of commodities which is not included in their guidance and obviously as a building products company they sell a lot of lumber okay. um, and I would say that going forward as you look to their guidance the uh, potential of tariffs as we've been talking about recently and the unknown about lumber prices are really what's going to be the factor for the sales so what specific comments did they have about the tariffs are they just kind of a generic kind of Home Depot, I mean, a, a Walmart kind of warning, like it's not good for the consumer. It's probably gonna, if it comes through, it's not gonna be good for us. 
Uh, yes, they just said that they're still going through this fourth tranche to see sort of what happens with it. But I think if you step back like Walmart, they have a very diversified product assortment and very diversified vendors. Um, so to the extent that they might be able to um, have some impact there and probably push price as well. Do they, do they make money on lumber? I mean, is it like cosmetics or something? Is like when when we walk in the door. I think door, it's, a, it's a low margin category. It's a low margin Very, category. Yes, the big, some often the bigger ticket items like appliances and building products are lower margin uh, compared to some other categories. I mean, I'm looking at a premium two by twelve, Paul. <laughs> premium two by twelve. To their immense credit, in their overview, they show that the two by twelve is actually one and a half inches by 11 and a half inches. <laughs> Are you thinking about doing major... some home remodeling over this I, I weekend at the you know, surveillance I a, penthouse? I need an 18, I need an 18 foot 2 by 12. And this is serious stuff. I mean, they move a lot of this stuff, right? Yes, they do. So that is really what um, the big question is. But I think the fact that so far they've reaffirmed guidance, um, that makes people feel much better and uh, a lot of the negative impact to their top line was driven by exogenous factors that they don't control lumber prices and they don't control. So what's the what's weather. the what's the revenue drive? What are the two or three key revenue drivers for this company that investors really focus on? Uh, number one, it's the pro customer. It's about, I think it's like over forty percent of their sales. Really, forty percent. Wow. Yes, and much less. I have no idea. Pro oh. customer is very important. They continue to <clears throat> develop. Um, products and services to service this pro and gain loyalty and increase engagement. So I would say that is number one. And then other sort of macro factors that you look at is home price appreciation, existing home sales, housing turnover, and the age of the housing stock, which the houses are pretty old in the United States. Right. And so, and I think another thing that they didn't highlight here, but that we've been looking at is the demographic shift. Millennials can't afford big houses. They often have to buy smaller houses and remodel them. And there's more aging in place as the baby boomers age. And they also have to remodel yeah. their house so they can <clears throat> still live there. For a while, it was a duopoly, but it seems like Lowe's has drifted away. Is that just my Northeast bias and the fact <laughs> there's a Home Depot beneath me? Yes. Lowe's has drifted away. They had struggled recently. They got a new CEO in July. He's all about, quote unquote, going back to retail basics, cutting, um, you know, improving the use of technology, cutting costs, having better services and products for the pro. But I think in that investment, they're significantly behind Home Depot. So, And there tends to be a spread between Home Depot's comps and Lowe's. So I think this weighs negatively on Lowe's for tomorrow. So, Tom, I'm looking at the PGO function on the terminal for uh, Home Depot, and I see only about 8 or 9% of their revenue comes from international. Has that just been a stated strategy of the U.S. market's just a great market, we don't need to go anywhere else? Yeah, they're in uh, Canada and Mexico. Mexico had a positive comp. Canada's been a little bit softer, which um, is not surprising. But I just think that they think there's a lot of productivity and opportunity in the United States, so they don't want to go too far out of there. Let's go bigger, bro. Simi Shaw with us. We're thrilled that she could join us in studio with Bloomberg Intelligence. Go bigger, broader now. And mm -hmm. let me give you an assignment. You need to write a paper for Bloomberg Intelligence right now yeah. of Amazon forward 12 months. How yeah. would you attack that theme? In terms of the valuation? Or no, not so much Amazon itself, but the Amazon effect on all of retail. The next 12 months. Right. Forward. The Amazon effect in my mind is that there is a shift 
in purchasing not just to digital but to mobile and Amazon and even Walmart's trying to have this marketplace. And so for typical retailers, they must invest in a mobile app and a website and in this omni-channel strategy, but they will not get the return for that investment. That's the risk for retailers. Is omni working? Because all these people tried out omni and I'm like, how omni is it right now? Omni is necessary. It doesn't work as smoothly as they will tell you on the conference call. Shipping, free shipping costs them a lot of money. Developing the infrastructure to manage where somebody returns something and where it is in supply exactly. chain. It's, it's very expensive. And I don't think with this shift to marketplaces and the fact that real estate on your phone is precious, that all these apps are going to work. And that's what I think is also contributing to the fact that many retailers are struggling. See, Tom, unlike a lot of retail analysts, SEMA has consistently been <laughs> bearish on retailers' ability to compete against Amazon and yeah. do the mobile It's strike. all the rage. Yeah. And I'm right, like, well, Amazon's really? also allowed to be an irrational competitor. Right. What Everybody do you mean else. By that? Meaning that when other retailers say we're going to have an investment year, operating margin is going to be hit, or we're ramping up marketing, their stock suffers. And you know, if they don't turn things around right. and see an immediate improvement in sales, usually the CEO is out. Yeah. Whereas Amazon is a, has been given a lot more leeway to just invest and be very price competitive. Did you see that, Michael Barr? She just called us irrational in here. <laughs> well, see how she did that? I, I, I've it's seen you when the Red Sox lose. You know, we're irrational. <laughs> Seema, brilliant. Thank you so much Thank for joining you. us today. Just really brilliant. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.